Yo, what's good everyone? It's Anushan and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Yo, what's good everybody? We are back with another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm Anushan and today we got a two-man pod for you guys. I brought my boy Eric on. Say what's up, man. What's really good? So with the regular season of the NBA finally approaching its end, we only thought it appropriate to talk about who we believe are the winners for all the major NBA awards this season. So for today's format, just to clean things up, we're going to be discussing the top three candidates that the NBA has currently in each of the categories, discussing why we believe who is the best deserving of the award and why some of the candidates might not be all that, who by the NBA standards aren't in the top three, but nonetheless are in the conversation. And who knows, maybe they might even be more deserving than who is already in the top three. Of course, let's start with the MVP and the honorable mentions. So for MVP, for the rankings as of today, we have at the number one spot, Nikola Jokic. At number two, we have Joel Embiid. At number three, we have Giannis Antetokounmpo. And for some of the honorable mentions, we have Luka Doncic, Steph Curry, and Chris Paul. So let's go over our number three guy right now, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Uh, Eric, what do you think about this guy? I think this is a perfect placement for him. His team is one of the top three seeds in the East. Uh, so. They're playing up to standards, but I think this is a good calibration for him winning the last two MVPs, but not quite being up to snuff when it counted. So he's having a a season that's comparable to his MVP seasons, but I think he's, he's just a little lower than the two guys ranked above him. Yeah, I mean, just to piggyback a little bit off of you, Eric, I I totally agree. I think number three is a great spot. And it's honestly really impressive that he's at the number three spot, given that he has won the MVP the last two years, like you you said. Um, Honestly speaking, Giannis is a guy who has all the potential in the world. And we've, we've seen time and time again that he is a top NBA player. And especially during the regular season, he's an absolute nightmare to deal with. But... Again, I I feel like his team is even better this season, and they aren't even in the top spot of the Eastern Conference. Granted, they're dealing with the Philadelphia 76ers, the Brooklyn Nets, who are very stacked teams in their own right. But, you know, you figure that for Giannis, in order to really grab that next spot for a third MVP, he'd have to lead his team in the Eastern Conference. And again, he's not doing that. But I, I feel like number three is a great spot for him nonetheless. Yeah, no complaints there. I mean, <laughs> all three years he's been in the top three of MVP voting, and two years he's number one. So, like, he's already solidifying a Hall of Fame career. Yeah, absolutely, no doubt. So that brings us to our number two guy, which is Joel Embiid. And this is a guy that, you know, has so much potential – and there's so much talk about whether he really is deserving of the MVP. So, Eric, why don't you uh, let us know what you think? So, up until two or three months ago, Joel Embiid, to me, was the front runner as far as MVP candidates. Um, 
He's destructive on both ends of the court. He's a marquee defensive talent as a big man, and he's great offensively. Uh, he's averaging near 30 points. He's hyper-efficient. He's giving you around 11 rebounds a game. You're getting blocks from him. So on both ends, you can count on Joel to affect the game. The reason I have him at number two is at some point, you have to be available. And he missed a fairly significant amount of time of a couple of weeks. And the number one guy who was running neck and neck with him throughout the season, he didn't miss any time. So I, I think that was my demarcation between the two front runners for MVP. Yeah, Eric, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, for for a long time when I the NBA season was going on, I really thought that Joel Embiid would like usurp Nikola Jokic for that number one spot. And it, it just shows, like you said, he is like a complete two-way player. He's having the probably the best season of his career. Um for a guy of Joel Embiid's standards and what we know of his injury history, he's actually not been that bad in comparison to past seasons where he's missed time. So it does give a lot of Sixers fans, and I know us, we, a lot of playoff hopes to see how far that the Sixers can actually go, given that Joel Embiid looks relatively healthy. Um, and, and yeah, like he's as dominant as they come. I, I do think that they have a better team surrounding him this year. It's a team that's super geared towards Joel. And there's been games where he hasn't necessarily needed to take over in the last quarter. For them to win games, Tobias Harris has been a very good, solid second offensive option for them. But over and above all, I do think Joel Embiid definitely deserves the talks, and he cements himself in that number two spot for sure. Agreed. I, I think he's actually, this year, and I'm knocking on wood as I say this because I don't want to jinx, uh, jinx the uh, guy, but I think this year he's going to show out in the playoffs, and he's going to have a bit of his like real like playoff introduction as a, a marquee big time guy. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. And again, we can only hope for him to have a healthy playoffs because again, last year with the Sixers being injured, it they kind of fell short and it'd be a real damn shame if they fell short again, because one of their superstars primarily Embiid gets injured. So it would be devastating nonetheless. Nikolai Jokic this season has cemented to me that he's a generational talent at the five. Like he's the best passing big man I've ever seen in my life. I didn't get to see Bill Walton from 40 years ago fame, but Jokic offensively as a fulcrum for a very good offensive Nuggets team has been phenomenal. We spoke about how efficient Joel Embiid has been this season. My man Jokic has been even more efficient than him while being the primary setup guy for everyone else on his team. And, of course, you mentioned when Jamal Murray went down, he's, like, steadied the ship. Now, of course, he's also had some help with the ascendancy of Michael Porter Jr. But 
the guy has been phenomenal. Yeah, Eric. I mean, Jokic is just one of the greatest passers that I've ever seen personally. Um, he's just such a efficient player on both being a primary option as a scorer, but also being the engine of the team and really facilitating all the offense for them. Um, I've said it many times before. The things he's able to do on the basketball court are just ridiculous. Just watching him play with the eye test, you can tell that this guy is uh, – he's, he's as clutch as they really come in the NBA. And for a guy of his size, like, he can be defensively engaged when he wants to be because of how smart he is on the court. And now I'm not saying he's some, like, crazy good defensive player, but he has made some big defensive plays. And I'll look back into one of the Pelicans games I watched where he had a game-winning block against Zion Williamson, nonetheless, who is an absolute monster in the in the paint. So I, I really hope that Jokic stays healthy for these playoffs because, for me, you need to have the MVP in the playoffs in order to make things interesting. And by all accounts, to me, he's the MVP. Facts. Big facts. So who we have next? So there are other guys that we have in honorable mentions, but the three guys, to me at least, that stand out are Luka Doncic, Steph Curry, and Chris Paul. So, Eric, let me ask you, what do you think of all three of these guys? Let's start off with Luka Doncic. So Luka, I think he's a prisoner of expectations of sorts. I mean, this is his third year, but he seemingly was like the preseason favorite to be the MVP. And he hasn't quite had the year of the guys in the top three, but he's still been and his third, again, third year player. Hella, hella great. So I, I think any other year he might have been a little higher, but the other three guys played out of their minds. And Two of those guys just happen to be elite two-way players as well. You know, Eric, when I was thinking about this, I had this thought that, like, the NBA is so talented. I mean, just think about it, right? You have a guy, Luka Doncic, who's damn near averaging a triple-double, a 30-point triple-double, mind you, and he's not even in the top three from the NBA standards, right? This is a guy who has carried the absolute load of the offense for the Mavericks, also considering the fact that Kristaps has not been healthy for a majority of the season, or he's been in the, like he's been playing in the lineups, but he's been injured as well, right? So it's not it's a guy not playing with his second co-star. And all that considered, he's carrying this team where he is the primary focus of every single defense. They always other teams will always put the best defender, and then send double teams, even send triple teams at this guy, and they can't stop him. And this is a guy who, if I would say they were winning more, would definitely inch his way up into the top three. But just because of where the Mavericks are right now in the standings, they're currently six in the West, I just don't think that he is in that level of top three because you have to have, by MVP standards, the player needs to be doing everything that he can for his team's success, right? And if the Mavericks are sitting in that lower playoff seating at six, I just don't think Luka should be in that conversation. Yeah, agreed. And and that's also the issue with 
Our next guy, who we thought like deserved consideration, Steph Curry, he has phenomenal stats and he had a, a run at a point through 10 games where he was averaging over 40 points per game off of like plus 50% shooting and shooting around 50% from the three-point line where it was just like ground shattering. But his team hasn't, as a collective, been quite up to par. And historically, we tend to give greater MVP consideration to this almost golden rule, perfect balance between stat accumulation and team success. The only issue, those two guys, the team success, even though statistically they have been like gargantuan, the team success hasn't quite been there like the other guys. So I think that's a very astute point that you brought up about the standings for Luka Doncic. And I, I think that's similar with Steph Curry. Yeah, Eric. I mean, I think you've said it extraordinarily well. And I, I correct me if I'm wrong. There was a stretch within those 10 games where he played 10 games and had 100 three-pointers within those games. I don't know if that, that's the actual stat. I, I haven't looked it up. But I remember hearing something, some absurd number of three-point shooting and three-point makes that he had during that stretch of games. So honestly, just incredible from Steph Curry. But again, like you said, team success is very important, and he's currently sitting in the eighth seed right now in the West. So for those reasons, just an honorable mention. But, I mean, the guy's playing out of his mind. I hope we get to see Steph, if they if they do the play-in game, which it looks like they're going to be in a play-in game, um, I hope we get to see Steph outside of the playing game because like he can be a problem individually for a couple of games for any team in the league like he gets that hot yeah absolutely i mean that that guy is crazy and another guy who is having just as good of a season maybe not so much in the numbers but in the opposite way for team success we have chris paul and a lot of the guys on our pod, AC and Usui especially, these are huge Chris Paul guys. And, hey, I love the guy too. I mean, he's playing so well that even at his age, he's in the MVP conversation. So, Eric, I mean, what do you see? Like, why, why do you think that this is the case? So, admittedly, I usually shade Chris Paul, but in the most passive-aggressive of ways. <laughs> but <laughs> this year... With a young team, and, and remember, the pieces were already there prior to Chris Paul coming. That team was not particularly competitive before he came. And this year, with generally similar pieces, they're one of the better teams in the league. So, I mean, hats off to him. It seems like every franchise he has gone to since his draft back when he was drafted back in 2004-2005 Chris Paul has made every team that he has played on competitive that you can almost assure that team is going to make it into the playoffs now they might not win a championship which he has never done which I'm being passive aggressive again <laughs> but <laughs> they will get to the playoffs come hell or high water so yeah 
Hats off to Chris Paul. He's been a beast this year. You know, Eric, I mean, as guys who watch a lot of basketball, right, this is something we see a lot when it, when it comes to young teams is they don't understand how to control the pace of a game. They don't understand how to, you know, slow the game down or speed the game up when it needs to be sped up. And a guy like Chris Paul is as good as they've ever come and we've ever seen in the NBA at controlling pace, controlling pace of play, you know, acceleration, speeding things up when they need to be sped up. This is a guy who, like you said, everywhere he's gone, he's made a positive impact. He's made the team better in some facet, in some way. And again, I I do think it's also due in part with, you know, Devin Booker having a very good offensive season in his own right. And the rest of the role players being exceptionally good this year. But again, I feel like all of that comes at the point of attack, and that is Chris Paul. So for sure, I didn't even see this coming at all for the Suns to be fighting for that top spot in the West. Right now, they're kind of going back and forth with the Utah Jazz. But this is way beyond my expectations. And I will definitely say in our earlier episodes when we did our our season previews, I did... I was dead wrong with my predictions of the Suns, and for that, I gotta, I gotta say sorry to the Phoenix Suns and Chris Paul. I was just gonna add, just to like further crystallize how like important Chris Paul has been to that team. Devin Booker, who has very good stats across the board, uh, particularly scoring stats and, and shooting splits. Devin Booker's statistical profile is very similar to to what it was last year. And the difference is night and day adding Chris Paul. So, like, yeah, he's been legit. So that brings us to our next award. And this is Defensive Player of the Year. And this is an award that there's been a lot of debate, a lot of controversy with what's been going on, the media always finds a way to push one guy up on the other. And there's always a lot of fighting going on for this award. So, and that's because of the two main guys in the one and two spot right now. So at one, we have Rudy Gobert. At two, we have Ben Simmons. And at three, we have Bam Adebayo. And for honorable mentions, we have Giannis, who shows up again. Joel Embiid, who shows up again. And another guy who kind of goes under the radar, Miles Turner. So, Eric, looking at the third guy, we have Bam Adebayo. What do you think about him? Great defensive player. Kept the team afloat when they had a bunch of injuries, particularly Jimmy Butler being out for quite a bit. I mean, I I don't think he has the versatility, quite the versatility of the number two guy. I don't think as as far as an interior presence, um, the number one guy – he act, he matches up, but he's a fairly versatile defender, and he's been very, very, very good. So I don't want to take anything away from him. Um, yeah, I have nothing but good things to say about Bam. He just didn't happen to be in my top two. Yeah, for me, actually, just as far as versatility goes, because I tend to value versatility a lot when it comes to, to basketball, but also for the playoffs especially. And I would actually put Bam a bit ahead of our number one guy, to be honest with you. But back to what Bam does, he is fantastic on all all across the board. I mean, again, any defensive side you can think of, he can run, 
and run at a high level. Um, with a guy like Eric Spolstra coaching him, who is a defensive mastermind, you can employ so many different schemes, so many different types of zones, whether you want to put Bam Adebayo at, at the top of the zone where the point guard would normally stand, or, I mean, you can put him in one of the back two spots where the four and the five stands if you're running a conventional uh, 3-2 zone, or even the 2-3 zone where you put him at the five and he can sit in the middle. So there's so many different ways that you can play with this guy, and I, I just think that Bam's superb on the defensive end. Yeah, facts. Um, but I had our number two guy, Ben Simmons, like a little bit above Bam. Uh, I think Ben Simmons, of course, incredibly versatile defender. And if we were just looking at Ben Simmons for his passing and defense and nothing else, he would probably be one of the top three or four best players in the league. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, just... Dude is a destructive defender. Like, the Sixers, they have a wealth of options on that end. They have two really, really great defenders. I I got into this quagmire of sorts trying to decide between Ben Simmons and the number one guy because, on one hand, I really, really, really value versatility on the defensive end, and that's, like, emblematic of Ben Simmons. On the other hand, I understand that traditional big men have almost like an outsized impact on games on the defensive end. So I was a little torn, but I guess Ben Simmons is 1B for me as far as defensive player of the year. Yeah, uh, Eric, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I actually put Ben Simmons in my number one spot, and to me, it's it's not even close. I, I just think that the versatility that Ben Simmons can provide is, it, it's like Bam, but better, right? And I already went on a little rave about Bam Adebayo, but I mean, again, just imagine Bam Adebayo, but a little bit better, because you have a guy now who maybe is not the rim protector that the other two guys are, but in every other facet he can, he can play super well on the defensive end. He is a ball hawk. You cannot be dribbling the ball loosely around this guy. Otherwise, he'll pick your pocket. Ben Simmons is amazing at his on-ball defense. He's a great off-ball defender, bumping, bruising guys. You can switch him onto anyone. He is a great drop guy if you need him to be that, or it's a great hedge guy if you need him to be that. I mean, he, he just does everything that you need him to do on the defensive end. And he's just very smart, right? Like, he's a guy who just knows the right spots to be in. He knows when to make a big defensive play. To me, it's just a no-brainer. And then, again, if we move over to our number one guy with Gobert, like, yes, I get it. He is the reigning defensive player of the year. He is a, by all accounts, a fantastic shot blocker. But, I mean, I've watched so many games of the Utah Jazz play. And when I watched Rudy Gobert play, teams, when when, I, when other teams see a, a defensive player of the year, they kind of fear at attacking him. But there's so many instances where guys just, Go at him, whether it be a bigs or guards. Like, they don't care because they're willing to challenge Rudy Gobert. But a lot of guys aren't willing to challenge a Ben Simmons or a Bam Adebayo or even some of the honorable mention guys that we have. So for those reasons, I would actually, personally, I'd put Rudy Gobert at that three spot and i put the other two guys above him and I would have Ben Simmons at my number one spot for those reasons. Hmm. Hmm. I can... 
I can definitely see where you're coming from. The one thing I will say, though guys do challenge Rudy Gobert, he's in the upper 90% at obstructing shots. And when he's the primary defender in the paint, guys shooting fairly low field goal percentages. So he's very effective, even if psychologically someone might be scared of someone else and not him. The one thing I will say, and I feel like I'm changing, and you've you've influenced this, I'm kind <laughs> of changing on the fly who I think should be 1A between Ben Simmons and Rudy Gobert. I think your point about versatility and the, the versatility on different facets that Ben Simmons possesses, particularly, like you said, drop coverage, his man-to-man defense is, is fantastic. Off-ball, great. The one thing about Rudy Gobert that I think is a bit of a demerit, and I feel like I'm, I'm cherry-picking a little bit, but I'm going to say it all the same. Rudy Gobert has seemingly become some type of litmus test for illustrating whether you are an elite big or just a good big or worse. So the two elite offensive bigs in the league, Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic, when I've seen them play against them, they roast them a lot. Other bigs, not so much. So I, I don't think Ben Simmons has a similar situation where guys on the perimeter that he's guarding man-to-man that I could point out like, oh, this, gu- this guy roasts Ben Simmons every time he sees him. So, yeah, you, you just changed my opinion. I mean, talk. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, Eric, like, and this is something that I've always, I always thought about, especially come playoff time, right? When you're in the playoffs and another team has a specific offense that they can run against you. Now, granted, not a lot of teams can have the freedom to run this kind of offense. But for the teams that they've matched up against in the past that have been able to do it, like the Houston Rockets, where they just run a five out, right? Where everyone on the floor can shoot. So it leaves a guy like Rudy Gobert kind of in no man's land. And and, and for those reasons, I just can't like conceivably say, okay, like, if there's a player that becomes a liability on the defensive end because of a scheme that another team can employ, that's not good. You know what I mean? And again, like I understand the point of not every team can run a five out, right? But once you get to the the playoffs, the best of the best teams can employ that strategy. So if from some way that the Nets are not the Nets, the, the Jazz could get to the finals and play against the Nets, they can run a five out against them. They play against the Lakers. Hey, swing 80 to the five. They can run a comparable five out. Maybe not something incredible, but AD can shoot the three. He can space the floor. So there's a lot of situations where they'll be matched up against teams that are able to employ that strategy. So because of that, I just can't get that high on Rudy Gobert, even though I know he's an incredible interior defender. Yeah, I think you pretty much just destroyed my case for Rudy Gobert, which I didn't have my heart in anyway because he's French. No, I'm joking. It's <laughs> a joke. Eric. It's a joke, guys. <laughs> so let's move on to some of our honorable mentions. And, of course, we kind of already talked about two of them in passing for the MVP, but we have Giannis and Joel Embiid here, and we also have Miles Turner. So let's briefly talk about Giannis and Joel, then move over to Miles. So, Eric, what do we got? I, I do think that's Ben Simmons. And – 
Giannis, I, I guess Giannis and, and Ben Simmons in my mind, they share on the defensive end some type of like parallel space, but I didn't think he was quite as impactful this year as he was in years past. Yeah, I mean, I fully agree with with your Joel Embiid points. And going back to a little bit something more on Giannis, I feel like Giannis is probably a better rim protector than Ben Simmons, but I just think in all facets facets of defense and what they're able to bring to the team, I think Ben Simmons just nudges him out just a little bit more. So for those reasons, I'm, I'm just a bit more higher up on Ben Simmons. But Giannis is an incredible defender in his own right, and he is a reigning defensive player of the year as well, right? So he's he's incredible. But let's talk about Miles Turner. Um what do you think, Eric? Oh Miles Turner was great. Um I mean Miles Turner had a stretch for about a month where he looked every bit of a top three defensive player of the year candidate. I I still think the other three guys are a little more dominant on that end. Um, I think two of those guys are more versatile. He's more versatile than Gobert, but I do think Gobert is more impactful, particularly at the rim than, than Miles Turner as far as like obstructing shots and, and changing uh, shot patterns. And of course, concurrently making field goal percentages go lower. So that would be my, my only complaint, but he's, he's rising. He's rising. He's he's going to be a stud on that end for years to come. So I can definitely see in the next two or three years him potentially winning a defensive player of the year. Yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of is unfortunate that there is so much defensive talent around the NBA because in most cases, a guy like Miles Turner would be a definite forerunner for the award. I mean, like you said, he's he's very comparable to a guy like Rudy Gobert in the sense that they are fantastic rim protectors and while I would say I think Miles Turner goes for more of these like really hard to get shots and goes for more of these blocks I will say that the deterrence factor is in favor of a guy like Rudy Gobert who I mean is that intimidation factor that he brings is very important because like you said there are statistics that kind of back up Rudy Gobert and his opponent's effective field goal percentage around him around the rim so again, for those reasons, Gobert's probably edging him out, but I think Miles Turner is right up there, like you said. So how we're looking for six man of the year? I like this was one of the categories for me that was a little difficult, and I I think we're going to run into a similar situation where it was a little difficult for me because I had two guys on the same team quite. I really didn't know who necessarily to put above the other. But I'll start with with my third pick, and that was Jalen Brunson, who Oswe has said is a bit of my doppelganger of sorts. So <laughs> Yeah, I, you, you kind of look like him. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, so I got to give, give a shout-out to my evil twin, or am I the evil twin? I'm not exactly sure, but I got to give a shout-out to – Jalen Brunson, he was very, very good as the sixth man off the bench for the Mavs this year. Yeah, uh, I think Jalen did a great job. Um, 
he's a guy that when Doncic comes out of the game or if they want to run a lineup where Jalen becomes the primary ball handler, he's very solid. He's a he's a Villanova product. They don't really a guy like him doesn't really make that many mistakes. He is a very solid player all around. Not not some flashy player either, but he can chip in a couple like ten to fifteen points a night. Uh, solid playmaker, good defender. Uh, only thing, only knock I would say on him is that he's not that tall. I'm pretty sure he's around like that six one, six two mark. So he does give up a little bit of size, but I mean, nonetheless, the guy's a dog. He plays with heart, with his heart. So yeah, definitely in consideration for sure. Yeah, I I mean I like you said he doesn't really make mistakes. He's not a guy that I I think of as being like a traditional phenomenal bench scorer like we've had guys like Lou Williams who has won six man a few times and that's what I think of the modern six man being this guy who comes off the bench and he just like goes fuego and lights the world on fire but he doesn't make uh, mistakes, and he's dependable. He runs a good second unit. Um, yeah, he's dependable. <laughs> so so that leads us to our some number two guy, which is Joe Ingles. So, I mean, what are our thoughts on Joe? Yeah, Joe was my number two guy because he plays – quite a bit of games where he's the starter. So I thought it would be a little unfair to the number one guy, but Joe is a very good defender, spaces the floor, runs a good offense. He's a good passer. And if he actually came off the bench more, I probably would have had him as my sixth man, but I feel uncomfortable having him as the sixth man just because of that. So I know that seems like a, a strange reason, but it's my reason. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I, I think Joe's probably started a bit too many games, but this guy is a very good basketball player. For his size at around that 6'8", six, 6'9", six, mark, he's a fantastic playmaker, and he definitely takes a lot of that playmaking responsibility over the guy on the same team as him, who is more of the scoring option. So... I think Joe is great. He has a very good complete game. He's a very tough guy, too. Very good defender. Uh, great shooter. He's having very good shooting splits, I believe, this season as well. So Joe is definitely a guy that's up there. But I also agree he just hasn't He started too many games to really be considered a sixth man of the year. So, again, it sounds like a very cheap reason for him not to be more so in consideration. But I also agree that's also my reason for not keeping him there. But let's look at our number one guy who shares the court with him, Jordan Clarkson. What do you think, Eric? So Jordan Clarkson is a a strange conundrum of sorts. Jordan Clarkson this year is what he was essentially last year, is what he was essentially the year before, is what he was essentially the year before that. But now he's getting a lot of, like, attention as – this marquee six man, and it's just because his traditional counting stats went up. But he's always been a guy like who comes off the bench and he can just in very small amount of time put buckets up. So I think as a secondary scorer on a team that though well balanced, particularly defensively, and they space the floor, on the second unit just being 
a go-to guy and put the ball in his hands. He's going to get shots up. He's been fantastic. He's he's reminded me this year a lot of Jamal Crawford in the past. Wow, that that's a great comparison, actually, uh, Eric. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, this guy is like instant offense as soon as he comes off the bench. And, I mean, that's great because, again, like, when you're dealing with a Jazz team that has a tandem of Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, uh, Bogdanovich, when they're healthy, all three guys who can put the ball in the basket, and then off the bench you have to deal with Jordan Clarkson, who has an absolute green light to do whatever the hell he wants. I mean, you're dealing with some incredible offense, and the guy is no slouch, right? Like, he is complete an offensive player as they come. He can score from multiple levels. Great. Actually, I wouldn't say great three-point shooter because he does have his stretches where he's very streaky. But one thing that he's very good at is getting to the basket. Consistently, he's able to get to the basket, finish, take really difficult shots off of one leg. You know, floaters, has a very wide variety of ways he can attack you. And because of that, it's not really much that he can offer you outside of his offense. He's not a particularly great defender. But again, like the Jazz don't need him to be that, right? They just need him to get to that like 20 points per game margin, uh, chip in a couple of assists here and there, maybe three, four assists, and boom, you have a, a team that's unstoppable. I mean, and it shows right now in the NBA standings just how good the Utah Jazz are because Jordan Clarkson is such a big part of what they do there. So again, I think that Jordan is incredible and he's definitely the forerunner for six man of the year, at least to me. Yeah, I I think so as well. Uh, The guy has no conscience, which I love guys who have no conscience. So (laughs) I I, I can definitely see in the playoffs him having (laughs) a random 40-point game that just comes out of nowhere that somehow he does in just a very truncated amount of time. So, yeah, he's, he's quite the sight to behold. Yeah, no doubt. And that also leads us to some of the honorable mentions that we have. So three guys that I I see that could maybe have like sneaked into that three spot. We have a Shake Milton for the Sixers, Dario Saric for the Suns, and Montrez Harrell. So, I mean, what do you think? No, so I I don't have any issue with any of them. I'm going to be a little hard on one of those guys, though. So the guy I'm going to be... The guy I'm going to be hard on is Montrez Harrell. Yeah. Because his his traditional efficiency uh, stats as far as scoring, they're great. They're, he's usually somewhere between 55 and 60% at any given time from the floor. And he doesn't take away much on the offensive end. But he's very limited in the lineups that he can face defensively because he's a bit of a tweener. Um, he's He doesn't have traditional size, but he also doesn't have traditional speed on the perimeter. So he doesn't have the versatility to just switch onto anyone. And, and his plus minus stats, he's been horrendous this year. Like horrendous. <laughs> like I've been yeah. watching the Lakers the whole year and it always seems as if, when Trez comes in, he'll get some buckets. He'll even get a rebound here and there, even though he's not a strong rebounder. But it seems like 
scoring leads diminish when he's on the floor and scoring gaps increase. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know how high I'm on Trez for six man of the year this year. Yeah, I mean, I'm in total agreement. And again, like you've watched the Lakers more so than I have. But I mean, the thing with Montrez, when he comes into games, it's kind of like a coin flip at that point, because you don't know whether he's going to actually provide something that's like really good or if it's better off that one of the other bigs that the Lakers have just plays in his place. And it's it's strange because he is sort of that tweener in the sense that he would, no one knows if he's really a five because he's more like a four in a five-man's role. He doesn't have particularly long arms. He's kind of kind of like T-Rex arms. Uh, he has a good game, I would say, like uh, as far as offense goes. He's a good not T-Rex arms, though. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not T-Rex. Maybe not T-Rex arms, but smaller <laughs> wingspan than the conventional big man. And his no, every, what, everything you said was spot on. It's just now that I'm imagining him is like <laughs> with T-Rex arms, <laughs> like trying to block shots and his arms just flailing around and he can't reach stuff. And it's perfect to describe his wingspan. But go on. Yeah, I mean, I, again, like. It, I feel like if he could provide one thing at a very elite level, it would be fantastic. But you, you encapsulated it well. Like, he is not the greatest of rebounders. He's undersized. He's not a particularly great defender. He's not really that fast. He's kind of like your average player. And for a guy who won six man of the year last year, to kind of be in the position that he's in now, especially when the Lakers really need him to be stepping up, he hasn't really shown that much and it's kind of disappointing to be honest with you all three of the bigs on the team and i'm talking about marcus all anthony davis well of course anthony davis that goes without question but marcus all right. and andre drummond should be getting whatever minutes they give montrez harrell uh i i, I don't know why why i suspect why He's gotten so many minutes. Uh, clutch sports, shout out. But I don't think he should. Definitely, as we transition into the postseason, there is no way he can play a significant amount of minutes and they'd be successful in the playoffs. Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors that kind of go against Montrez and getting playoff minutes. But let's look at the other two guys. We have Shake Milton here and we have Dario Sarge. Have you seen anything particularly good out of these two guys? They are very important pieces to their respective teams. Uh, I mean, you know, I haven't really, and I'm going to be honest, I think, I think this is like one of the things where you were saying with Montrez. I probably haven't looked at those two guys quite as much this year as you have. So I'm going to let, I'm going to concede to you and let you talk. I, <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. I mean, Again, I think Osby would be a much better guy to encapsulate what Shake Milton means to his team. But, I mean, from the games that I've watched, he is a very solid guard to have off the bench. And I remember when we were talking about doing a lot of those sort of trade things back when Lowry was on the trade market, Shake Milton was a guy that I would really like to have for my Raptors if we ever ended up making a deal with uh, the Sixers. And it's because he's overall very solid. He comes to the game very complete game i would say doesn't do anything at an exceptional level but he can put the ball on the floor he can score the basket he's a good shooter uh good defender 
so he does everything that you need for someone from that role. But again, I don't think it nudges him or posits him into that top three. And to talk a little bit about Dario Saric, I mean, he's always been a guy that has been a good basketball player. He is a stretch four. Of course, can play that five if you need him to play that five. I wouldn't say he's necessarily a great defender, but he's always been a a good rebounder for the most part. And he does do his job, but I do think that they have limited amounts of time that they play him. So he doesn't have a lot to show for, and his statistics don't really show that much. But again, he does play an important part for the Suns. He plays a good 15 to 20 minutes for them. And I feel like Dario is a good piece for any sort of championship team to have, but he's not a guy that you necessarily depend on, like a Jordan Clarkson, where you need this guy to get you buckets in order to posit yourself to win a game. So for those reasons, definitely honorable mentions, but nowhere near the top three. And see, that's the reason I didn't really want to get into, well, of course, Milton, I think Osley definitely knows more, but I didn't want to get into it talking about Dario because I don't even know how to gauge him. That team is better than they were last year, but his role is a little bit reduced. Some of his efficiency stats are up, but I'm not exactly sure how much of that is not just playing with the savant that is Chris Paul and and everyone gelling together better than in previous iterations of the team. But yeah, I, I think it's it's probably fitting for them to be an honorable mention. Okay, so that brings us forward to our most improved players. So we'll talk about our top three guys, and we'll talk about some of the honorable mentions that we have. So at the number one spot, we have Julius Randle. At two, we have Michael Porter Jr. At three, we have Jalen Brown. And for honorable mentions, we got Zion and we got Lujan Stort. So uh, Eric, what do you think of our number three guy, Jalen? Yeah, so Jalen had an uptick, and I thought for most of the year, on both ends of the court, he was a little more impactful than his fellow blue chipper, Jason Tatum. So I, I thought, considering previously it was looked at as Tatum being the number one guy on that team, it seemed to me that Jalen was making a bit of a leap. Unfortunately, he's out for the rest of the year with an injury. But yeah, Jalen, he was he was doing incredible. And for a stretch of time earlier this season, he was looking like an all-world, both-ends-of-the-court guy. But I, I have him at number three because he tailed off a little down the stretch. Yeah, I think three is a great spot for him. I mean, once Jason Tatum went down, you know, even though the Celtics were still struggling, Jalen's performance was absolutely incredible. And, you know, in fairness to the Celtics, they were dealing with a bunch of injuries at the time. Kemba wasn't fully 100%. Um, Marcus Smart was out. So, and they had to deal with a lot of COVID protocols as well. So the Celtics definitely got hit really hard, but Jalen kind of played really well during that time. It was really impressive to see him sort of carry a team on his back and like show us that he is an elite two-way player. And like you said, he certainly showed out. So, so congrats to him. Yeah. Facts. Uh, my number two guy was Michael Porter Jr. 
So this this one was a little tricky because he's gotten a new role as the season has gone on, definitely with the injury that Jamal Murray uh, suffered like a month ago. But Michael Porter Jr. has been incredible to the point that he looks honestly unguardable. The guy's shooting around 55% from the floor. He's shooting almost 45% from three on over six threes per game. He's been phenomenal. And the one difference from last year, he actually, though I wouldn't go as far as saying he's good on the defensive end, he looks engaged, which for young players is half the battle. So, yeah, he's been lighting the world on fire. Like, I'm, I'm really high on the guy. I, I think he's a deserving number two. Yeah, I, I feel like this is what a lot of people expected out of MPJ when he was when he fell to the Nuggets at that 14 spot during uh, that draft. And a lot of people were kind of disappointed with how he sort of played in his first season. But like looking at where he's come now, he is a fantastic spot up shooter. Um, he's a fantastic athlete, so he can definitely compete at the rim with the best of them. Um, I mean, the dude is an absolute baller. And, and again, like guys who have that that size at six ten, he's probably closer to six eleven, honestly. Great length. I mean, those are guys, those are things you can't teach, right? And if a guy can shoot and put the ball on the floor and score from a multitude of different different angles, that's always a positive that you want to have when it comes to a scorer on your team. And I mean, give him a few years, and he can definitely be a primary option. You know, like he maybe not playing with the Nuggets, but playing somewhere else if he wanted to, really, because this, the sky's the limit for this kid. Again, don't speak, don't speak that into existence. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, let's hope that the Nuggets can retain this guy and he can just be a great, great scorer for them. But you know, one thing is just his defense. But like you said, being engaged is half the battle. So once he can shore that up, I mean, shit, sky really is the limit for this kid. Dude can score on any platform. He can shoot over anyone. I saw a stat where he has one of the most unblockable shots as far as, like, taking three-pointers. Like, dude shots hardly ever even as much as get tipped because he's so tall and his release point is so high. And he's giving you an easy 20 per game without monopolizing the ball. He's playing off the ball. Yeah, that's actually a really big thing, too, because I remember – Last year in the playoffs, he was caught sort of saying, like, he needs to be involved more in the offense. There needs to be more plays run for him. And, you know, to have that mindset from the past and adapt that to now where he doesn't need necessarily need a play called for him, but he just needs to sort of play his game and find open looks for himself. And when he gets the ball to create looks for himself, it shows that he's sort of grown out of that idea of I need things to be called for me. And he's transitioned to a, I will get my buckets how I get them. Cutting, scoring uh, from three-point line, spotting up, waiting for opportunities to come to me. So having that mindset is incredible for a young player as well. True story. So that puts us now to our number one guy, and that is Julius Randle. Eric, I know you have a ton to say about Randle, so I'm going to let you pop off real quick. So... Julius Randle has been a poor man's version of Nikolai Jokic for the Knicks 
and that is not an insult at all. The mm-hmm. dude has been incredible. Prior to this year, we knew he had talent. He was he was a blue chip recruit at Kentucky. He was drafted, I think, number seven a couple of years, like five years back. Mm-hmm. But never knew in the early years because he also suffers a bit from the tweener like label that he would become the player that he is now. Like he's become a legitimate offensive fulcrum that spaces the floor. Never knew the dude could pass the way he, he passes. Always knew he had athleticism. Always knew he had grit. And the grit he has, it seems the team around him, between him and the and Coach Tibbs, they've taken on that mindset and personality. So he's, his leadership has been fantastic. He's been the primary reason that a team that won 21 games last year are now at 38 wins with a couple of games to go. Like, I, I can't speak more highly of him. The dude has been great. So he's my pick for number uh, one for most improved player of the year. Yeah, and I definitely have to agree with you. I mean, the dude is an absolute unit. He's an offensive force. Um, he competes on both ends of the floor. And in every sense of the word, he is a leader, right? Like, I, I'm sure you've seen that clip of him shooting a free throw, AD's just down the floor. So what is the, what's the first thing he does? He shits, shoots a free throw, runs straight back on defense to guard him. It, it's things like that that really show you who wants it bad. And Julius Randle wants it bad. He's been seen saying numerous times how much he loves the city of New York, how even today, I believe he came out with a statement saying that he wants to retire as a New York Nick. Like, the guy is just everything that you want out of a star player. He's fantastic and i absolutely adore this guy so i i definitely agree he should be the uh, candidate for most improved player so for honorable mention we both came to the conclusion that we think zion and uh lucan's dort should be like get some acclaim for the uptick and performance that they had this year what do you think about the two yeah, I mean, with Zion, right? Like, uh, it's kind of expected at this point that Zion would be having a great second season just because, like, he already had a great first season with the the, the time that he did play. But, I mean, the, the sheer numbers are just so incredible to see how well he's able to score, how well he's able to get into the paint. Again, he still has his shakes on defense, but, I mean, as far as a force this guy is like nothing i've ever seen like i I think of julius randall but stronger and it's like even harder to imagine julius randall but stronger because this guy's built like a a goddamn tank he's just able to get into the pain and do whatever the hell he wants no matter who's guarding him and he's gonna terrorize the league for for years to come he's like if aaron donald played basketball (laughs) that's very true like (laughs) you just he just bowls through people and, and they just fly off of him. And it's, it's no way to guard him really when he gets going without fouling him. He had a stretch this year where he had in 10 games, nine of the 10 games, 
he shot over 50%. But eight of those 10 games, he shot 65% or higher from the field. Like, just a, a efficiency profile that hasn't been seen since prime Wilt. Now, it was for a 10-game stretch. It was just absurd, absurd. So, like, man, Zion, if if he can stay on the court, Zion going to be a problem problem. Yeah, and you spoke about something that's very, very crucial, which is the efficiency. And for a guy to be that efficient with taking the kind of shots that he's taking constantly being attacked when he gets to the rim and taking all that contact and converting on a lot of these these shots, it's, it's incredible. So hats off to him for sure. Now, looking at our, our next guy that we have here, Lujan Dort, he's a fellow Canadian, so, you know, I got to give a shout out to my guy. But he has played very well for the, the Thunder. He is a great two-way player. He's become much more of an offensive focal point playing with his other fellow Canadian men, uh, Shea Gildas-Alexander. So the two guys are a very good tandem of players. Um, they're not quite there yet in terms of experience and, you know, all those things considered, but... I mean, he made a major uptick from 7 points to 14 points. Um, rebounding numbers haven't really increased that much, and he's not really a guy who's going to get you a lot of assists either, but he is going to be a guy who is not afraid to take and make big shots. He can shoot the three ball pretty well, and he's a great defender. I mean, we've seen what he could he did against James Harden in the playoffs last year. Uh, the guy has a lot of upside, so he's a guy that's on my radar for sure. What's fascinating about him, uh, I thought there would remain this huge, huge gap between his defense and his offense, but it seems as if his offense is having some uptick. It's, he's still a better defender than offensive player, but he's he's doubled a lot of his counting stats, particularly scoring. So, yeah, the, the guy, he's here to stay. He has been very, very good this year. So that now brings us to Rookie of the Year. And this is another award that's going to be very contested amongst the first, our first and second guy. So our first guy that we have here is LaMelo Ball. Second, we have Anthony Edwards. Third, a guy who really kind of crept up on the radar, Jayshon Tate. And for honorable mentions, we have Tyrese Halliburton, Sadiq Bey, and Emmanuel Quickly. So let's talk about Jayshon Tate. Eric, what do you, what do you got? So... I didn't get to see Jason Tate until very recently. He started getting a little more PT. He's playing for the Lowly Rockets, but he's been getting a little more PT when uh, when Kevin Porter Jr. went down and John Wall. And he's been surprisingly good. And he, he seemingly, because of his height, was playing out of position because he plays the three on the Rockets. But, like, he's 6'4", and... He seems to physically hold his own, which I've been very, very surprised with. But he's a, a big body, 6'4 guy. He, he's like a, he's a bit of a young P.J. Tucker of sorts. And, and that aspect of having a big body and as far as height, playing a little out of position. But he's a stalwart, so he's, he's been pretty good. I personally would have put on my list Tyrese Halliburton. Over him, I, I think Tyrese Halliburton, as far as his impact on the offensive end and spacing the floor for a young Kings team, even though they're not 
particularly good either. I think they're a little better than the Rockets, who have been a bit of a shit show this year. Um, yeah, I, I would put Tyrese Halliburton above him, but I, I don't have a problem with Tate in that position personally. Just to reiterate from the beginning, a lot of these are the NBA rankings, like where the NBA currently posits them for their rankings. So again, we I also agree with you in the sense that I, I believe that Tyrese Halliburton is in that number three spot ahead of Jay Sean Tate. But to talk a little bit about Jay Sean Tate, again, I don't really follow the Rockets all that much, and I guess for good reason, because they're not very entertaining to watch. But he's done a good job at keeping them competitive in games um he's played really well given that you know john wall and kevin porter jr are out granted i think that's probably the only reason why he's sort of getting to shine but i mean he's shown that he can be a very valuable player like you said that's six four mark kind of playing a bit out of position but he can do a bit of everything he can score the ball he can get to the basket he can shoot a little bit um i don't know how good he is on defense i've yet to really see that much out of him on that side of the ball but again i don't really have that much i can really outright say about him so but so far i mean if if he continues to develop at the pace that he's developing now i mean again with a lot of players you never know right like no one really expected a lot of the second round picks of years past like the draymond greens the mono ginobili's to be the players that they became so you know you never know with guys like that yeah i think you're i think you're absolutely right with Tate, who knows? But for our number two, we have Anthony Edwards up. So I'm gonna let you go, Anu, because I have some conflicting feelings about Anthony Edwards. I have him like solidly at my number two, but I I, I kind of at a point wanna <laughs> just wax philosophically about why it pains me to have him at number two. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I actually really love Anthony Edwards. Um, and particularly, I'm a huge fan of his, the way he handles the media and press conferences. Like, he, he's always joking around with the, the Minnesota media and, like, just having having fun, just smiling, just saying whatever really comes to his mind. Like, he doesn't really care that much. And this is a guy that I feel like he has all the potential in the world. I, I've seen some of his highlights, and I've watched – the Timberwolves play this guy is he's incredible he has bounced like you would not believe I mean I saw him baptize Utah Watanabe when I was watching that game and I, I was like, taken aback I had to like double take to see what he did to Utah like it was just absolute murder I mean the guy can score with the best of him and his numbers as of late have been extraordinarily good um I mean sky's the limit for for a guy like this to be honest with you yeah, that's what pains me about having him at number two. I think in a lot of years, he will be a very strong number one. He started slow and he had growing pains, but he's been phenomenal for the last two months. He's getting more PT. He's he's gotten his starting job, and it doesn't seem as if he's going to be ever relinquishing it while he's in Minnesota. So, I, like, yeah, he, he showed me a lot. He reminds me of almost like a bigger, better, potentially better shooting version of Russell Westbrook, which I know that that's high praise, but I think the guy's an absolute stud. 
And I'm surprised about it because coming into the season, I saw him play in Georgia last year. I questioned his motor. I didn't think he was particularly engaged on neither end of the floor. And though much like Michael Porter Jr., though he's not a good defender yet, I see a lot of tools. He seems more and more engaged as the season goes on and he's playing more. And the offensive tools are clearly there. His shots at some point is going to be good. And his athleticism is off the charts. And he's averaging 18 points per game as a 19-year-old rookie who won't be 20 until August. So, yeah, the guy's a stud. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've I've had, like, a lot of debate going on with myself about whether he really deserves that one spot, you know, because at a time you could definitely argue when LaMelo Ball was was injured that Anthony Edwards was was a guy for sure. And, I mean, Carl Anthony Towns himself, obviously it's his teammate, but he just outright said, like, there's no one, no rookie doing what Anthony Edwards is doing right now, right? So, I mean, he has a lot of support from guys who are relatively good players in, in the NBA, right? So it, it's very interesting to see where his career will end up and if he'll actually find a way to push past our number one guy, which is LaMelo Ball. And he's absolutely incredible. So, Eric, just uh, let us know what you think. Oh, I'm a full-fledged LaMelo fan. Like, you you can't say anything bad about this guy. I think he's a savant. He's a basketball genius. He's like watching Mozart at a precocious age, you know, perform symphonies. Like, he sees things on a court that shouldn't be humanly possible. He has eyes in the back of his head. He's actually fairly efficient in a way that looking at him last year when he was playing in the Australian Basketball League, I thought would take longer for him to catch up in efficiency with. His three-pointer isn't a liability. His field goal percentage from the floor is not bad for a first-year player. And then the phenomenal floormanship is just off the charts. And on the defensive end, he hasn't been horrible. He's passable uh, defending a wing. So, yeah, I I think him, the sky's the limit for. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to piggyback straight up on what you said because you just said it so perfectly. I mean, now this might be very premature to say, but there's a lot of facets in his game that remind me so much of a Magic Johnson. Now, I say that because, one, he's a, six, a solid 6'8", so he's he's pretty tall for a point guard. He has great ball handling, probably better than Magic at that same age for their times. Um, and he has that passing gift. He's super unselfish. I want to see him be a bit more aggressive scoring the basketball. But, again, if he's a pass-first player, it's going to be hard to sort of balance two things. And you mentioned something very important, which was defense. He's a comparable defender. You can put him on a wing and he can guard a wing. I wouldn't necessarily be super happy about putting him on a bunch of the faster guards in the NBA, but he has a very good knack for the ball. He reminds me of like Jokic in a way where it's like he can sniff out a play or see a play happen, even though for a guy like Jokic, for example, he can't physically do a lot about it, even though you can see it happening. 
But a guy like Lamelo has those capabilities. He's a very good athlete. And I, there's an instance in the Pelicans game that they played where I think in three straight possessions, he got steal after steal after steal, just breaking up plays because he has such a good nose for the ball. So a guy like that has a lot of potential to be a great two-way player. But importantly, he has the potential to be a good two-way playmaker. And there's not a lot of guys in the NBA who are like that. So I'm very excited to see what LaMelo Ball can do. And for me, he's definitely going to be Rookie of the Year. Yeah, and I, I guess that's still the problem. Like, he's been so great. I just feel bad because LaMelo missed some games and Anthony Edwards has been moving up. But LaMelo Ball has been legitimately an experience. So, yeah, number one of my book. So let's talk a little bit about the honorable mentions. We we have Tyrese Halliburton, Sadiq Bey, and Emmanuel Quickly. So we both thought Tyrese Halliburton should be at that three spot. So why do you think that? I, I feel that at this point he has more impact than our number three guy. I think he's been, to me, a little better because of his floor spacing. He's more impactful. He's a, a knockdown shooter from, you know, range. And he doesn't make many mistakes. He seemed as if he came in already, like, suited towards giving good impact. He reminds me a lot of, like, Malcolm Brogdon when he came in the league. Like, the the ceiling isn't particularly high, but the floor isn't low and they they're always going to be a decent player so he's been really really decent as a rookie so yeah that's why i had him as my number three guy you actually made a great comparison the malcolm brogdon comparison i didn't even think of that but like now that you've said it it makes a lot more sense to me because yeah he's a very solid player like one thing that's very important with rookies is they tend to make a lot of mistakes their turnover numbers tend to be very high but I don't really see Tyrese making a lot of those mistakes. Now, granted, he's not some elite playmaker yet. He's not elite in any facet, I would say. He's a great shooter, for sure. And he's he has a really good nose for the ball. But I feel like in time, he'll be able to cultivate and develop those skills more and more and become a player who is a very solid option. And it's good to see him play with a team like the Kings who already have good guards. I mean, I'd like to see him get more of an increased role playing there as a primary ball handler, because I feel like that's more suited towards what he would want to do. But so far, I really like what I've seen from the kid. He can play off the ball. He can play with the ball in his hands. So he can do a lot, a lot of good, positive things. So definitely for me at the number three spot for sure. So we also had in our honorable mention, we had Sadiq Bay and Emmanuel quickly. I those two guys is it's interesting. So Emmanuel quickly, I thought was like an afterthought because he was drafted number twenty five. I I really didn't think anything of him, but he's been surprisingly decent and and short minutes. So I I think the Knicks have something there. I also feel the, the Pistons with Sadiq Bay. Uh, they have something as well. Um, another guy that they're not giving much minutes, but his minutes when he's on the court, both of them, they they have impactful minutes. So 
yeah, like, this is actually a fairly decent rookie class. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think you made a great Emmanuel Quickly sort of little snippet there, where, you know, he wasn't really high on many people's radars, and, you know, when Alfred Payton wasn't, I don't know if he was injured, but he definitely wasn't getting any minutes during that time, so Emmanuel Quickly sort of took that role at the at the point guard position, and he played really well, honestly. He was, he's a great shooter. The kid shoots incredible from the free throw line. Um, he also brought a little bit of a floater game, which is really interesting to see. I don't think he's a great defender, but again, there's room for growth in those departments. So I think the Knicks definitely have a guy with a lot of potential here. And I think his minutes did kind of take a hit once Derrick Rose came to the Knicks. But rather than Emmanuel quickly sort of being down about it, he he embraced that and he wants to learn more, which is which is a really good thing for young players. So good on him. And just to talk a little bit about Sadiq Bey, uh, once Jeremy Grant sort of went down, Sadiq definitely got an increased role. And he is a guy who I'm actually kind of impressed with, to be honest with you. Like, he can do a little bit of everything. Um, I, I, again, they're not really winning too many games. So whether you say they're empty stats or not, I mean, that's up for debate. But, I mean, the guy has been pretty solid all around. He can he has a pretty decent, complete game, I mean, for as far as a rookie goes. So, I don't know. Again, like, I don't know how many more minutes he'll see an increase of especially once Jeremy Grant comes back into the lineup because they sort of play in that same 3-4 role. So it'll be interesting to see how they balance that out. But, I mean, they definitely have a guy who's shown that he can play when given the opportunity. So, I mean, kudos to him. The Knicks have some pieces, it seems like. I'm just (laughs) – as you were talking, I was just thinking that through. It's (laughs) It's, It's really interesting because, like, of course, Julius, they also have this young guy who was an afterthought, but he's been decent. So the future is bright. Yep, no doubt. So the, that sort of moves us next to our next award, which is Coach of the Year. And now there's a lot of candidates for Coach of the Year because I think a lot of teams have really surprised us. So right now within our top three, we have Quinn Snyder at number one, Doc Rivers at number two, Monty Williams at number three, and we have a bunch of honorable mentions. So we have Tom Thibodeau, Steve Nash, Mike Budenholzer, and Ty Lue. So we'll start with talking a little bit about Monty Williams. Oh, he's been great. He's been awesome, right? I mean, again, they're in the tougher, or at least historically the tougher conference of the last decade, and they're vying for the number one spot. So... Yeah, Monty Williams has done a fantastic job with a franchise that is usually pretty poorly run. So, no complaints. I I think he deserves any adulation he gets. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, to me, Monty was always a guy who just kind of sort of floated in the NBA hemisphere. He wasn't really necessarily some great coach. But, I mean, I guess when he had the situation that he has right now, with Chris Paul obviously leading the helm and having a really good, hungry young team. I mean, he's done a good job sort of managing egos, managing a lot of the players, managing minutes. So, I mean, kudos to him. Definitely has done a good job, and he definitely deserves some sort of recognition for the work he's done there. So, at our number two spot, we got Doc Rivers. Eric, what do you think? 
Doc is a perennial Coach of the Year candidate who I will never give the Coach of the Year to until he wins another another championship. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really simple. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of us would probably agree that Doc has always been in the upper echelon of coaches, but he's never really cemented himself as a a, a top-notch coach or a guy that we just think, like, yeah, like, he's by far and away the coach of the year. He's never had that sort of impact. So, yeah, for me, I think he's done a great job in Philly, but, you know, he's got to prove a little bit more because he's had many years where he's had great squads, but he's never been able to to do anything with them. So, you know, we have to see him actually get some results in order for me to take that number two spot seriously. And that puts us at number one, where we have Quinn Schneider, who a lot of people would say definitely deserves to get this Coach of the Year award. So, Eric, what do you think? And I know I, I tend to, with awards, I tend to be where the moment takes me. And as I'm sitting here thinking about it, I actually think Quinn Snyder or Monty Williams will be like great choices. So like Quinn Snyder is coach of the year this this season. I can't see that as a wrong choice. I mean, they are number one in the league. And the Jazz aren't a team as far as their makeup on paper that I would necessarily think would be a number one team. I, I, I don't think of their best offensive player, Donovan Mitchell, as being the crumb de la crumb of guys on offense. I think of Rudy Gobert to be a excellent defender, but not particularly versatile, as we spoke about earlier, and not quite the impactful big man that some of the upper echelon big guys are. So he's done a lot schematically to get that team to where they are. And we even saw last year, schematically, like they were always in a puncher's chance of winning. So he's done an incredible job. Kudos to him. <laughs> wow, Eric, it's like you're you're reading my mind because like literally everything you said was just exactly what I was thinking. I mean, it's just so incredible to see a guy, and by all accounts, like you said, his squad doesn't really merit him to be in that number one spot, honestly speaking, for uh, the Utah Jazz. But you look at what he's been able to do with that team, sort of construct a working offense, not just a working offense, but one of the better offenses in the NBA right now, and a top-tier defense as well. Um, Also considering the fact that he's had to deal with a multitude of injuries, especially as of late coming from Mike Conley and his star player, Donovan Mitchell. So he's been able to make things work. They're still able to win games. And he's just done such a fantastic job with that squad. And it's like you said, like I would not be opposed if he won this year's award. It sort of seems like it's not, he's not a shoe in to get the award, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Quinn Snyder walked away with the coach of the year. So to me, I think he definitely is a guy who 
has earned it if he does win it and has done a fantastic job this year with the squad. Yeah, there there are legit years where people win and I don't necessarily think they should win and I have a problem with it. For Coach of the Year, I remember when George Carl won some years back, I kind of rolled my eyes at it. And that's partially <laughs> because I know George Carl teams – the second they get in playoff situations, <laughs> they go to crap. So yeah, yeah, that's true. It, it's just one of those things. But I, I, I don't feel any type of animus to any of of the two between Snyder and Monty winning the award. I, I think they could be great picks to both of them. Yeah, for sure. So we, we can look at some of the honorable mentions. And again, we have a lot of guys here who, in a lot of facets, could definitely win this award. So we have Tom Thibodeau, Steve Nash, Mike Budenholzer, and Ty Lu. So I know that you're a guy who's kind of really high on what Tom Thibodeau was able to do. So why don't you tell me why you think he should get in recognition for the award? So I would definitely have Tibbs in my top three. I probably will move Doc out put Tibbs in. Um, I think when we came into this year, this season, I didn't hear anyone saying that they expected the Knicks to be in even a playoff seating. Yeah, like, I'm no, guilty no, as charged. No one was saying this. Like, I wasn't saying this. None of us, I, I can remember on the podcast saying this. The one thing we all spoke about is – they had a severe lack of spacing. So I, we just didn't see them doing particularly well in a modern NBA where you kind of got to have spacing. But somehow, Tibbs says, along with Julius Randle, and also shout out to Leon Rose, who is the president of basketball operations for the team, they have made a team that seemingly wasn't going to be good be a legitimately good team who any game they play, there's a puncher's chance of them winning. And, I mean, to me, as a coach, that's all you can really provide. So, yeah, I, I think Tibbs did a, a great, great job. You know, just interesting with, with Tom Thibodeau. The one thing a lot of people tend to hear about him are the negatives, where he's a guy who, in fairness, has been has done this in the past, where he's run his guys into the ground with the amounts of minutes he gives his starters, not really knowing how to utilize his bench, things of that nature. But, I mean, this season... Even if that is the case, he's found a working formula for them to be competitors in any game they play, like you, you mentioned. And that, to me, is very incredible as well. So while I personally don't think he should win Coach of the Year, I think there's definitely a lot of merit he deserves for what he's done with this New York squad to give them this identity as real threats in the Eastern Conference and, you know, even in the West, when you play against the Knicks, you can't treat it like a joke anymore where you go, ha-ha, oh, we're playing against the Knicks. Well, let's see if they manage to score negative points. You know what I mean? Like, you, you, you can't have that opinion of them anymore because they are 
guys who have a real chance at winning games. No truer story has ever been told. They've been highly competitive this year, which, again, is surprising. And I'm a little sad. As a native Washingtonian, I was taking some perverse pleasure out of the pain of suffering (laughs) Knicks fans over the last eight or nine years. Like, I, I feel like it was it was helping my ego. And now something has been taken away from me that they're like a good team. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm totally with you there. I mean, I can't tell you all the, the years of just teasing AC about how awful the Knicks are and how it's such an embarrassment to the NBA about how bad this team is. I mean, on all accounts from their players to their management, just just hilarious to laugh at. But, I mean, it's not a joke anymore. I mean, they are legit uh, – I wouldn't say contenders, but they're legit playoff beasts, right? Like, they can they can really make some noise. So yeah. we got to see. They can give you a series. Hell yeah, for sure. So let's move on to our, another guy who's having a great first head coaching season, and that's Steve Nash. So, Eric, what do you think? Okay, so this is where I'm going to shade someone. I I have a problem with giving Steve Nash any acknowledgement because, A, he has this historically great offense because he has a proliferation of offensive talent that is only comparable to America's nuclear arsenal. So, like... I I just can't imagine saying that a guy with all of these weapons and armament that he should be looked at as one of the elite coaches. And with him having Mike D'Antoni there, I'm not exactly sure he's running this show. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, well, for starters, I got to give you props for that uh, (laughs) nuclear uh, weapons uh, joke you made. That was really good. But um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you're right. In, in in some facets, like how much can we actually attribute this to Steve Nash? And you know, while it's kind of unfair to just kind of take away all the credit from Steve Nash, there's just nothing to really show that he's been kind of like the mastermind behind this. Because by all accounts, he hasn't shown that he can be a great defensive-minded person. Because even as a player, he was never never that. He's always been an offense-first kind of guy. Same with D'Antoni. On all accounts, he's another historically great offensive coach, but they've given up a lot of their defense because of it. And he's sort of been blessed to be in a situation where you have generational-type scorers on your team with Harden, Kevin Durant, and even a guy like Kyrie Irving who can get you a bucket at a snap of a finger, right? So, I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of – Steve Kerr in some ways when he just got put into a situation where he was just surrounded by fantastic talent all around. But again, Steve Kerr has always been regarded as a good coach in the NBA. So I don't want to necessarily take that away from Steve. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, in the playoffs, those sort of weaknesses get exposed. So only really good coaches are able to take advantage of the, the small details, actually make use of film room do things like that. So that's when it really matters to me, at least. Yeah, my my opinion of him is out until <laughs> until the playoffs. So I'm just going to ignore 
him as a coach of the year candidate. But yeah, that's me. <laughs> I'm a hater. <laughs> I mean, that's that's fair. So another guy that kind of gets a lot of flack for the way he coaches is Mike Budenholzer, who's also sort of in that same situation that Doc Rivers is in, where they're like upper echelon coaches, but and they always seem to kind of perform well in the regular season, but it's hard to really say if they're a great coach or it's just a product of, of circumstance. So, Eric, what do you think? Yeah, he's another guy. Um, he performed so well during the regular season, whether that was with the Hawks or with this Bucks team. And, and then he makes these inexplicable decisions in the playoffs, um, like not having last year Giannis guard Jimmy Butler in the Eastern Conference semifinals. So I don't know how to gauge his performance as a coach from year to year because he flounders when it counts the most. So my verdict is out on him as well. I, I think the Bucks have been good. I think the one good thing that uh, Coach Bud has done this year compared to previous iterations of his teams He's been a lot more flexible schematically, um, changing different defensive schemes and coverages, um, having Giannis play more off the ball and as almost like like a souped up traditional center and like crunch time instead of having Giannis monopolizing the ball and creating for others. So I, I like that, but... I want to see this extend to the postseason. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Eric. Like, I mean, again, you said it exactly how I would have said it. I think Bud has made a lot of good adjustments. He's kind of gone away from that frigid mentality he used to have where he would not change any of his schemes. He would just do the same same shit all over and over again, right? So I feel like he's finally using Giannis a little bit better. Um, obviously, now that he has Drew Holiday, there's a lot more defensive versatility you can run in your schematics so that that's really good for for Budenholzer there I feel like again like you said we had to see what he does in the playoffs in order to see if he's the real deal or not and if he was worthy of you know being a prior coach of the year winner so we have to see yeah facts facts for real for real we so, have one more we have one more guy and that was Ty Lu. What did you think about him this year? Because he's, I think personally, he's done very well. Even a little, I think they're a little better under Ty Lue than they were under Doc. So what was your assessment? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I've never really been that high up on Ty Lue. Like, I always thought he was a good coach, but he's never really done anything to just outright impress me, even with his days when he was. Uh, the coach of the Cavaliers. Like I always felt like LeBron was really like the true coach of that team. But I, I don't know. Like I think Ty has done a good job, like you said, with the Clippers. Probably a little bit better than what Doc has done. But I, I would put him in that same like category of coach as a probably a little bit under a Doc Rivers, to be honest with you. Just because I haven't really seen much of of him really making the impact rather than his team sort of, you know, pulling through for him. So I feel like it's a bit unfair for me to kind of place that on him, but, you know, I, I want to see how they do in this postseason before I can really, you know, posit him as a coach of the year candidate. 
Yeah, everything you said. We're simpatico. I think AC would tell us that we're being a little hard on him, and he has made series adjustments, particularly 2016 against the Warriors. Uh, we saw some of his adjustments in real time, but I'm still not exactly sure how good of a coach Ty Lue is. So, I mean, we'll see. Clippers, they're on a trajectory to be one of the better teams. Like, they match up really well with the Lakers. I, I think this year they match up better than they did last year. So, it'd be nice to see. So I think that's a great place to stop. I mean, honestly, a lot of these awards are going to be heavily contested. So, I mean, a couple more weeks and we get to see who, who's going to be the winners. Uh, as always, we'd just love to thank you for tuning in to our pod today. Uh, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and listen wherever you catch your podcast. And be sure to tune in to our next episode. All right, guys. See you later. Deuces.